This week's live stream is uh, kind of a fun one. We've got some genus updates for you. We've got some beer of the week, which is uh, American Amber. We've got uh, some new toys that we want to talk about. We've got some beer news, which will be kind of fun. And then uh, we're going to go into the state of IPAs will be our topic of this week. That's what we're really going to dive into as our deep dive. I got some fun little tidbits for you um, when it comes to things that you can look up to kind of help know what hop oils you're using. And uh, yeah, we should, uh, we should have some fun. All right. Well, let's just start with some genus update. Yay. And everything's fine. Yeah. Um, so first of all, you know, Peter labored for yeah 29 million hours last week. It was a week. lot of hard work, but I was able to make a baby this week. Uh, yep. So he's got a new baby boy. Yeah. Cute little nugget. Little, uh, I call him a, a squeaky burrito because he just gets all wrapped up in his little swaddle and squeaks a lot. <laughs> And then uh, on top of that, we tapped a Pro-Am Dunkel. That's right. We had a, the local homebrew club did a competition a style thing. Actually, this one was a fundraising raffle, but uh, the person who won got to do a Pro-Am with us. Uh, his name is Jimmy, super cool guy, and he uh, decided we wanted to do a Dunkel, so we kind of collabed together on the recipe. He came here. Uh, we all brewed it together, and it's been aging out for the right amount of time, so we were able to put that on tap this week, and it is tasty. Yeah, it is actually way better than most other Dunkels because it's got a nice drier body to it not that super super chewiness it's way better because we did it uh, and uh and then yesterday actually i was down at the incubator brewing brewing a uh a nice like stupidly hopped ipa that i actually caused one of the bartenders up front to start coughing because of all the hop oils in the air and i don't know if you've ever blown an ipa but it is an experience worth having <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah we got uh, a really nice uh amber kegged up yeah which speaking of american amber ale bjcp beer judging certification program category 19a yeah that's gonna bring us into <clears throat> our beer of the week beer of the week uh, uh, uh. there is a jingle that we made yeah we need to work on that i think we're getting better we're getting better <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, the BJCP's uh, category 19A American Amber Ale. This is uh, uh, one thing that we tell a lot of people that come in that aren't necessarily beer brewers or drinkers, because um, as people who are serving a lot of people, we get to see the, the beer asker forwards, uh, and that there's a lot of different categories of things that we would qualify as an amber, or at least what people expect to be an amber. Yeah, so amber ale or an American amber ale is also known as an American red ale, which is technically, I guess, what we were kind of trying to brew, sort of sort of a hoppy beer. And that's what most people don't think of as ambers can actually be pretty hop forward. Yeah, the malt character is going to be there, but it's going to be distinct. And one note, it's not going to be very muddied. You don't necessarily want a lot of yeast fruitiness to come um, uh, to come with it because you want that malt to be one note and you want the hops to kind of shine just a little bit but not enough that it's a really obtrusive beer there's not a lot to search for with a good american amber ale but there is a lot there and it's very clean yeah so um yeah as for profile i've actually got it pulled up on the bjcp right now and uh as of the 2015 um guidelines it actually has a really wide range so um they're hoppy they're moderate strength um, usually some caramel malt characteristics in them, um, which we actually did not. We used a different malt, but uh, we're a caramel talk... adjacent malt. Caramel adjacent malt. Yes, there we go. The uh, alternatives to that, um, but yeah, they can be ambery, amber color, obviously, um, copper hues. I'm trying to think. I don't remember exactly what their uh, 
SRM is going to be anywhere from 10 to 17. So that's a pretty big range. That's actually. the barely amber end of golden yellow mm -hmm. uh, to the almost brown end of amber, like darker. Yeah. And then same thing with IBUs, anywhere from 25 to 40 is what they are throwing out there. With that said, I've kind of seen them. I've seen them less. I've seen them more. I think ours that uh, we just got kegged up actually skirts right on the sort of high end of that. I think it's definitely pushing that 40, maybe even 50. Yeah, I was going to say range. probably around 50. Um, but that's nice. You know, you want that uh, a little bit of assertiveness to back up that malt character. And we like things that balance away from sweetness, which is kind of why we choose to make a lot of beers that are either super dry or if they've got that caramel note, that body to it, then we'll, we'll overbalance it with something like either acid or, or hops. Pretty much. Um, so as for hops, a lot of them will actually recommend. Um, that's kind of what separates, I think, an American amber from other types of amber lagers or amber ales that you might see. Um, elsewhere is that a lot of times the hops will actually be New World American hops. Um, the, the good old go-to is Cascade, but uh, we are actually going to be talking about... Um, Amarillo. Was Amarillo, yeah. Yeah, so a ca the, the classic American hops, the sea hops that America really got known for when it started developing a distinct style were Cascade, Chinook, Centennial, and Columbus. Those are very pungent hops, but they've got that citrus tone to them as well that... Uh, uh, or, or sometimes floral, depending on which one you're talking about, uh, that really distinct distinctiveness them from uh, what you know was formerly the hop capitals of the world, which would be the UK and Germany. Yeah, so um, for American ales, uh, Amarillo is our hop of the week. Amarillo is traditionally, it's got fruity characteristics to it. Um, it's got kind of a really, in my opinion, a nice balance of slight hints of pine <clears throat> character, but also like big sort of pineapple-y, um, you know, acidic tropical fruits, if that makes sense. And it's got a good amount of pungence to it as well. Yep. Uh, it's a really fun hop to play with, honestly, because you can use it to balance out other uh, uh, less hoppy beers or less yeah less pungent hops, uh, but you can also use it by itself, and it's got a phenomenal rounded character. Yeah. In the past, I have loved this hop as a dry hop and specifically um, amber-red colored beers just because I feel like it provides a sort of drying character. Um, when you dry hop it, it sort of dry, has that perceived effect of drying out the beer. However, I notice with this newest crop beer, uh, the 2019 crop beer now, it seems to not have that effect. And that kind of goes back into uh, knowing how hop varieties vary from year to year. Yeah, and we'll talk about that a little bit later when we go into the IPA-specific stuff, but you can actually look up your exact hop lot, um, depending on where you got your hops from. You can look up the actual lot number and get a full breakdown of what oils are present in your hops. Especially from YCH. Especially, yeah, from what you, you yeah. should show them. Well, we'll show them when we go into that okay. later on. We'll, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> But anyways, yeah, Amarillo, a good balance of pungence and fruitiness. You've got, you know, a good amount of things like grapefruit and orange, tangerine, things like that. But then it's also got that distinct, like, yep. some aggression behind it, too. Uh, fun hop to balance out anything if you want to know hops are there without being beaten with them. So um, as for our malt of the week, uh, we actually used a pretty high amount of Cara Aroma in the beer that uh, we just gagged up. We wanted to use Special X, but we were all out of Special X because we used it in a different beer. Uh, but Cara Aroma is actually a very similar uh, malt style. It's on that darker end, 130 uh, Leva Bond. Uh, and it, but it's got those distinct plum fruit notes that you would get off of like a C120 to C150, mm -hmm. but without as much of the sweetness. Yep. And that's exactly why we love using it. A lot of times if you start loading up on too many crystal malts, you get a sort of cloying aftertaste and using something like Caroma or Special X, 
Um, I think there's, is there another one too? Somewhere in that same wheelhouse. But anyway, uh, using a malt that isn't going to have quite as much sweetness associated with it can really help balance out an amber ale, especially if you're trying to let those hops come through. That's right. Uh, so yeah, Care Aroma, check it out if you have access to it. And if you don't, use some Special X as well. Special X is just, uh, I think, even more of an intense color, which is why we wanted it originally. But uh, they're both fantastic. Yep. Great to work with. As for our yeast of the week, we got actually a fun one that I am now getting very experienced with, considering this is the third repitch of it. And uh, that is the independent strain from Imperial, or if you're talking about Y-Yeast, it would be the American Ale 2, 1272. American Ale 2, which is from, I think I probably have it over here. Uh, that is Painter Liberty Ale. There you go. So... So from, Anchor, Anchor Liberty was one of, the, Anchor Brewing, huh? one of the oldest uh, hop forward beers that became popular in America, uh, Anchor Liberty. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what the American Ale 2 is from. There we go. And I, honestly, to compare this to, say, your traditional Chico strain, uh, it's going to have a definite fruitier profile to it. It pushes, it pushes through these really, really delicate um, notes of, I, I almost call it like kiwi. Um, especially in a Blondale that we just transferred. I definitely get notes of kiwi, but it'll actually push through any type of New World hop, which is why I usually prefer using it over the Chico strain. It can actually be softer and more neutral than Chico because Chico naturally lends a, an assertive minerality is kind of what I call it. Exactly. It's got yeah. a sharpness on the palate, which is good because it can balance hops and make a nice aggressive IPA. But if you really want to balance out and really show off your hops, sometimes something like uh, using this Liberty strain, the Independence, the American 2, whatever you want to call it, depending on your yeastery, it, it can help you show off those hops a little bit more. And I like yep. to ferment it on the colder side, like 65, 66 degrees. Yep, it'll definitely slow it down. It doesn't like to be that cold, <clears throat> but uh, it'll, it'll chug through it. You just have to give it a couple, three weeks. And do a big starter. And do big starters. Um, so yep. All the coaxing you can. That is basically all of our, our yeasty bits. Yeah. Jason Sellis' American Ale 2 is his go-to yeast. Nice. Uh, we also got a Bonjour from Quebec. Sweet. Mm. All right. On to uh, new toys for the week. Well, um, it's not here yet, but I did it's see coming. a very, very expensive order put in. Peter. It wasn't that expensive. Um, we actually found out, uh, found access to a glycol chiller that uh, came in uh, at a really, really reasonable price point. I want to say it was like four or five hundred dollars less than another similar glycol chiller. Uh, this one's relatively low in terms of overall thermal cooling capacity, but uh, it's got four ports and four uh, built-in pumps attached, which is what makes makes it really utilizable for uh, small batches. If you're doing two barrel or under, you can put four different tanks on there, and it'll look really good. And that is from Brewbuilt. Brew built glycol chiller. Yeah, that thing probably retails right around thousand dollars ish. Yeah, maybe even a little so, bit less. So uh, if you're kind of on a homebrew scale, looking to scale up or ha running a little nano brewery or putting one together, definitely look into those. They, in my opinion, have been the best ones to come out to market to date. And, uh, yeah. and they're not too much more than like the the grandfather one, which I you know I don't know if I haven't used the grandfather glycol grandfather glycol chiller, but uh, I don't imagine it being as robust as this one. Yeah, and this one was it was still. Was it a six horse or was it a quarter horse? Uh, I think it was six horse. Yeah, that's just still it's enough. A, yeah, it's enough cooling power for eight barrels, um, which is you know if you have four two barrel tanks on there, that's all you need. So yep. Uh, yeah, again, if you're doing some small batch things, that's a really really cost efficient way to to get into the glycoling and be able to temperature control your your stuff. Yep. So look it up. Fun new toys. Uh, what, what was the other toy? You had another toy. I had another toy. Yeah, I forgot to write it down. Filter. Filter. 
filter, hotback, yeast brink. We we modified our hotback to be a yeast brink with the double ports. Um, yeah, I don't, there's a lot of stuff. All right. Well, let's go on to beer news, which is <laughs> something I came across last night and couldn't help but crack up about. Yeah. And that is Topical Corona <laughs> is releasing a line of hard seltzers this spring in which they put out their first ad for with apparently a picture of them. I didn't even see it. I wish we could throw it up here. We're not that skilled, though, yet. Yeah, and I mean, we can, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll show you later. We'll try but, it. Uh, it was a photo of these cans on a beach with the slogan, coming ashore soon. I wonder why Corona, Corona and something coming ashore soon could be topical. <laughs> uh, anyways, if you want to see us blind taste some Corona seltzers and maybe some Bud Light seltzers uh, you know, with some other breweries, that's kind of an idea we've been tossing around. And I wouldn't mind giving them a try and seeing which seltzer's best. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, they got a lot of backlash for that. So I thought it was pretty funny. Somebody obviously wasn't doing their job there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's fun. Steer clear of Corona and coming ashores. What are you doing? Uh, our notes. What? Okay. Oh, no. There we go. And on to the meat of it. The state of IPAs. We have uh, been brewing IPAs for a while here, and IPAs have been changing a lot, especially over the last couple years with the hazies and now the milkshakes. And honestly, I think this year, 2020, is going to be the year of the uh, return to making IPAs clear again. Yeah, so we the one thing that I find super lost, and then it's really hard to get a good quality one, is a classic West Coast style IPA without going back to you know Sierra Nevada or you know Deschutes Inversion or something like that. Which don't get me wrong, those are fine IPAs, but they just don't give you that uh, that interestingness that you can get if you have something made fresh, especially locally. So uh, we are going to start our deep dive into IPAs, and specifically, we're going to talk about. Um, brewing mixed oil IPAs, talking about hop oils there. And then we're going to go into our whole leaf hops, how to use them, and also trying to focus on brewing shelf-stable beer. Yeah, and we'll also talk a little bit about methodologies that can be used to really impact that hop flavor without risking uh, getting some bad flavors, because you can get bad flavors that'll come with hopping incorrectly. Yeah. So to start out, people know about hops. They know that we ha they have the alpha acids, which are actually oils, right? Um, so, but beyond the alpha acids, those get broken down into all of these, I don't know, it's like over 200 different types of oils now, Yeah. right? Um, but the, to name a few, there's things like karyophylline, um, farcine, myrcene. humulene, and myrcene, and all of these actually produce slightly different aromatic profiles, slightly different flavor profiles, and depending on the ratio that every hop has, that ultimately dictates how that hop affects the flavor of a beer. So if you want to really get into, you know, hopping consistently, we've talked about this before in our brewing myths, but you don't necessarily go by just the recipe, like I want this much Amarillo and this much Citra. If you want to get really scientific about it, you need to go, I want this much of this oil at this time, this much of this oil at this time, etc. And you can really start to put together a more similar recipe that way, um, which if someone wants to ever make an Excel for us, I'm not super great at Excel, but there is a way to do it. Um, that'd be a way to kind of plug it in. Yeah, and the beauty of today being as modern as things are, as long as you know where your hops are coming from, I'm pretty sure just about every grower will actually link a code, like YCH, show them that now, um, link a code, some kind of a lot code, onto their packaging, which you can go in and actually look up and find exactly what the stats are on those hops. So even not as just a commercial brewer, but as a home brewer, 
you can do those numbers yourself if you want to get really into it. Let's show you how to do that real quick. Let's see if I can work my uh, while uh -oh. live streaming magic. Uh oh. I am fairly certain I got this figured out. I'm gonna <laughs> click this button and I'm gonna make us smaller. Yeah. Okay. And now we're, we're small. We're going to be inceptionized. All right. Let us know if this is working. Uh, then I'm gonna go over to that. And this is our exact lot number from that bag of Chinook that I just showed you. And so the reason this is important is let's take a look at something like... Uh, Pretty sure that's still Inception-y. Maybe not. No, it's probably not. Okay. Uh, let's look at this Meyer scene real quick. Well, let's click over to the stream so I can see if people are commenting. Like, this is working. Yay. Uh, nobody's commented yet. Right. I, forget how, I forget how big of a lot. Oh, look at that. See, watch. We can watch ourselves now. Look at that. Yeah. That's crazy. All right. Um, but anyways, why this is important, let's take a look at this Myrcene right here. Myrcene um, for Chinook, 35.5 uh, seems really high to me, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking. So we can go by uh, the specific lot. That's the Chinook that we have right over there. We can go over to, let's just take a look at uh, what average Chinook is. And you can see um, it says it's normally in that 25 to 35%. So definitely the ones that we have are on the high end of Myrcene, actually over the average range. Uh, and so that's one way to look into specifically what... Uh, um, you know what your hops can do. So if you wanted to get very focused on, I want to make the same IPA last year as I did this year. What if last year you had a 25% Myrcene and this year you have a 35.5% Myrcene? Um, that's why the hop whales can be important to look at. Especially since Myrcene, uh, yeah, having high quantities can actually affect that aromatics. It works. Someone said it works. Yes. <laughs> All right. Nailed it. All right, let's go back to our normal view. So, okay, so you know how, how people can... Yeah, so uh, I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Uh, people can go online, they can figure out these numbers, but how are we going to actually use them in a beer? And specifically kind of going back to our West Coast style IPAs, right? Mm -hmm. We're trying to find a blend of all of these different oils where a lot of a lot of hops, just like you saw in Columbus, might be really high in one type of oil, but actually pretty low in another. Um, and that's going and finding a mixture of perhaps maybe five, six, seven different varieties um, is what it's going to take to actually get that blended hop character. What are your favorite West Coast style IPA hops, everybody out there? And then while you're commenting that, I'll ask Logan the same question. My favorite, uh, well, Columbus, actually. Columbus. Um, Chinook. Those, are, those, are, those, those two would make my list as well. The, those are pretty much my favorites. Those are the first two I would think about, actually, as Columbus and Chinook. Mostly because uh, of their consistency, really. Yeah, they always, you know, have that pungence and that uh, well, Chinook has that just direct assertiveness. Like it's got this much of uh, that classic bitterness that you want in an IPA. It's got just a little bit of pine and it's got, you know, very distinct flavors. Whereas Columbus has just got that pungence that if you use it in the Whirlpool or as a dry hop, that pungence just turns into like grapefruit, like really nice grapefruit. Pretty much. I think the, yeah, Chinook is a great all around hop. The grapefruit I love in West Coast IPAs. There's something about it like that it comes through right on the finish makes everything happy for me and uh yeah but uh balance them out with some of the fruitier ones you know things like what we talked about already amarillo uh things like like your citras which are finally getting better i think the two the last batch that we have is pretty pretty good yeah it's still a little bit catty but you know is what it is uh things like um i'm forgetting one a really big one simcoe Simcoe. There we yeah. go. Simcoe. Or even going back for some softer fruitiness with that more kind of classic uh, approach, something like Comet. Comet's actually a really great hop, which is starting to get expensive now, actually. Don't use Comet. I don't know why. Uh, Millennium. Millennium. There we go. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, a, that's one that people don't really talk about much. And we threw a very small amount in a blonde ale that we made. 
and it actually came through incredibly clean, really nice lemon zest characteristic to it, like pretty much spot on. Nailed it. So, uh, yeah. So what do we got next? Back to our thing. Right. Uh, let's talk about shelf stability while I go get some water and a beer. All right. Shelf stability while Peter gets the water and a beer. Do you want one of those two things? Uh, no. I just um, more, more tea. No, I'm <laughs> All right. So regardless whether you are a home brewer or a commercial brewer, shelf stability is something you really want to be paying attention to with IPAs because hops by nature are something that wants to oxidize. It wants to come out of solution so you can smell them. And uh, as a result, even the best brewed IPAs after six months will taste like cardboard and stale honey. I don't know if you heard that, but uh, Peter said, let's talk about hopping mechanisms and let's talk about yeast. So first off, using hops that are have different oil contents, hops like Chinook, hops like Columbus, uh, that don't have those really, really super fruity profiles to begin with, those are actually going to be more shelf-stable than some of, the, some of the newer, fruitier varieties. And that just has to do with uh, the nature of, of how those hop oils want to oxidize really, really rapidly. Or even degrade and fall out. There's a lot of them that uh, uh, basically, as a general rule of thumb, the, those fruity notes, uh, a lot of times you're getting that from either Whirlpool or dry hop. The dry hop will drop off first with most of those, unless you're doing a biotransformation dry hop. Different story entirely, but the um, that fresh aroma that you get off of those hops, it, it just dissipates. Yep. Uh, that's the nature of the, of the being. So beast, meat, being. The nature of the being. Uh, the one thing that I've known to kind of help that is uh, um, bottle conditioning. I know there's a lot of breweries that bottle condition because of shelf stability, because it does end up being a long-term solution. Uh, I know some people are against that. Michael Toonsmeyer posted a thing like five years ago that was, you know, saying, hey, I prefer kegged Lodo method uh, IPAs. But that goes into brightness versus round and sweetness. So. Yep. And I think, honestly, both of those are doing a very similar thing, which is trying to scrub out any kind of oxygen that might get in in the process, um, which is what the yeast is going to do. And then doing low-do, which is low-dissolved oxygen, um, in your sort of brewing methodologies, which just basically means keeping a closed system during the entire brewing process and never allowing that beer to touch oxygen until it hits your glass. That's a common practice for the, the hazies that, um, in my opinion, have such a short shelf life on them. Realistically, those guys, no matter how good you're doing them, um, might last for five or six weeks is all. If they're done perfectly. And a lot yeah. of hazies aren't packaged perfectly. Uh, and it, it does depend on – I know a lot of people these days are going to like mobile canning. Like they have a can person come and can off their beers. Some of those are great and do a really good job of making a good consistent canning. And some of them honestly don't do that great of a job. I've seen hazies be purple after, you know, two yeah. or three weeks. Yeah, pretty much. Um, in a can. So, uh, yeah, so know your beer style. Obviously, a West Coast beer style is – going to hold up better than a hazy. Um, however, there is another trick that we have actually been using for years, which goes all the way back to the brew day, specifically to the mash and water chemistry. Uh, yeah, it's uh, we add ascorbic acid to almost every beer that we make, and it's especially important with uh, beers that we plan on being extra dry hopped. Uh, ascorbic acid, some of you already probably know, is vitamin C, and vitamin C is good for you because it is a very, very heavy antioxidant. So we usually dose it at a pretty low rate, um, generally about 
10 to 15 grams per barrel is all. So only a couple, three grams going in your, in your five gallon batch. Yep. It doesn't take much. Uh, and we don't use it necessarily for acidity, but it, it is an acid. So it does affect yep. acidity. Uh, it's a relatively weak acid, so it doesn't do a ton. You're going to get way more off of using something like acid malt or even, you know, a heavy dose of dark malts. Um, but yeah, ascorbic acid, We've done side-by-sides where we have poured beers. Uh, one was ascorbic acid hazy and one was non-ascorbic acid hazy and then just watched them sit out in the open. And the ascorbic acid one would stay that nice orange-yellow for you know 45 minutes, even an hour, whereas the uh, the non-ascorbic acid one would look purple after like you know, 5, 10 minutes. Yep. So ultimately, for some the takeaway from talking about uh, brewing shell-stable IPAs are going to be you know for your dry hops. Um, maybe brew a beer that's more whirlpool hops if you want it to be more stable. Brew something like a West Coast IPA. Brew something that might be a darker, like a Cascadian dark, dark ale, and ascorbic in the mash as always, as well as Lodo brewing if you plan on doing any kind of new world hazy. And if you are doing a combination of Lodo and bottle conditioning, that's the best of both worlds in my mind. Yeah. Uh, the only downside to bottle conditioning with hazies is if you want that bright, almost pseudo West Coast style sharpness, you do get an extra boost of that whenever you, uh, whenever you what is, what's it called, force carbonate. Because some of that CO2 uh, turns into carbonic acid, which gives you an extra bite. Yep. All right, so let's go on to our last topic about IPAs, and that is when lights apparently go out because one of those chargers wasn't working. When the lights <sighs> and uh, <laughs> and that is using whole leaf hops. Whole leaf hops have actually been sort of dying lately, and uh, that is just because of shipping and the packaging side of things. Whole leaf hops take up a lot of room. And if you're a homebrew supplier like us, we don't have the room to store them either. So, never get them fresh. Yes. Well, hey, I'm, we're getting into that, all right? Uh, cool, cool your jets. Peter. No, I'm just fixing everything yeah, here. Yeah, Peter's, Peter's going to turn the light back on here in a second. Um, but um, <laughs> where was I? So, yeah, so we're going to be talking about the good, the bad, and the best way to use whole leaf hops. Uh, <laughs> Oh yeah, somebody's asking about hop creep too. Uh, let me make a, make a note of that. We'll uh, we'll answer that at the end here. Um, one second. Bam! Hey, look at that. We got lights again. Yeah, hey, do I look pretty? Do I look pretty again? Oh, so pretty. All right, talk about talk about the bad things about whole leaf hops real quick. Okay, so the bad things about whole leaf hops is first of all, it's much more difficult to get a perfect packaging with whole leaf hops from the manufacturer. They're naturally springy and puffy, and I just never trust with the expansion and contraction that can happen in those larger bags that they can be perfectly sealed. They oftentimes are, um, but uh, the, since whole leaf hops aren't out there in the market as much these days, they're not being produced as much. Um, they're not being specifically packaged as much. They are a lot more difficult to get fresh. Yeah, I even noticed yesterday in the batch that I brewed that while the mosaics were very, very nice, smelt really fresh, looked really green, the Simcoe's that we got were not so much. I was like, ooh, these ones are not as good. Yep, you can see some orange chips around them and you can start to see a little bit of that like stale smell that comes with the uh, with, uh, hops. Um, so uh, pellets have become so much more popular because they are a more shelf-stable product. Uh, <laughs> even out in the open, um, exposed to air, pellets will last a lot longer um, than you know, even leaf hops will in a moderately refrigerated kind of situation. Yeah. Of course, the best thing you can do is freeze your hops. That's what we do. We have a chest freezer. They all stay at super, super cold until we're ready to open up and open them and use them. Yeah. But so, uh, yeah. So the other downside of 
whole leaf hops is just the sheer volume that you have to work with, um, not only for packaging, like I mentioned, but in the actual kettle itself. Um, yeah, it was that was fun cleaning cleaning all those out. You know, they're not going to form a nice big ball of hops in your kettle after a good whirlpool like pellet hops will. So usually you end up bagging them. Usually they end up soaking up a whole bunch of wort, and they're they're honestly a pain in the butt to work with. But uh, that's the negative downside to them. The positive side, though, for one, they can act as a filter bed. Um, and oh. so, is that what you're talking about? No, I was going to talk about them being cheap, but yeah, go for oh, it. Oh yeah, they are cheaper <laughs> as well. Um, so <laughs> you're talking about utilization or like how you use them. So I figured we were talking about that. Um, you can use hops as a filter bed. Uh, whole leaf hops will, if you do a combination of whole leaf and pellet hops, you can use the whole leaf hops as uh, something to help strain out some proteins from your wort. And then also some of the extra, um, what's it called? Uh, hop, hop gunk. That's true. Yeah. Okay. All the extra hop gunk. Um, <laughs> So what we did yesterday is after a whirlpool with a bunch of pellets and some cryo hops, um, we uh, transferred the wort into a, a mash tun. So that's got a filter screen on there. Um, and then the mash tun had the leaf hops on there. The whole beer went through that, sat in that, and mixed around for a little bit. And then we transferred it back into the – well, we normally transfer it back into the whirlpool. We heat exchanged it at that point. But um, – yeah, so whole leaf hops can act as a filter bed. They're also, generally speaking, higher in a lot of the essential oils that uh, that create aroma. So per per ounce, whole leaf hops will have more of those aroma building compounds because the pulverizing process um, that it takes to pelletize uh, actually works out some of those oils and it gets stuck on the machines. As well as if you are trying to avoid any kind of grassiness through adding tons and tons of hops, like you know, for a five gallon batch, if you're putting in a pound and a half or two and a half pounds, like somebody did once, um, you're actually going to have less grassiness again because uh, you're not pulverizing the, the, the bract or all the, the leaf material in there and getting that sort of chlorophyll type character from them. Um, which is important to have a way to, to filter out. And so if you are using pellet hops, it's good to have a good whirlpool or some me mechanism for filtering those out before getting into your fermenter. So the best ways that we have found to do it is actually using your mash tun and we'll talk about our hop back in a minute. But yep. uh, but yeah, so we will clean out whatever mash tun we're using and throw the whole leaf hops into that mash tun. And then actually, after we sort of do a kettle knockout, drop it down to whatever temperature we want, somewhere usually between 200 and 170 degrees Fahrenheit, we'll actually pump our beer wort into the mash tun, let those hops do a big old steep uh, for usually 20-ish minutes, I think kind of gives you the best utilization. I don't like to go over 30. I feel like you can still risk getting some kind of a grassy character if you go over 30 and then chilling the beer down and going through the rest of your brew day as normal. And if this can be in a closed situation, that's even better. So let's say you're, you have a cooler mash tun that's got one of those little sparge arms kind of drilled through the top of the thing. That's the best way to pump your wort in over the leaf hops, let it rest there, and then just pump it right back out into your kettle for um, for chilling, which is where hop backs come in, um, or hop rockets, whatever you want to call them. Yep. Some kind of a closed vessel that you can load whole leaf hops up into, um, and then pump the, the wort hot into that, and then go from that directly into some kind of a chilling mechanism that's closed so that it's cooled down before it hits your fermenter. That's just going to, uh, try to minimize any of those really, really aromatic oils from volatizing. Yeah, so you don't want those to evaporate and get escapes. You want those to be pressurized and in a system like a hop back. That's the best way to honestly infuse hop flavor without risking anything else and also getting a clearer beer at the end, which yep. is why we love our hop back. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it does. It actually, down at the incubator, it 
filters out a ton of pot break and protein break and yeah makes for a much cleaner cleaner wort it just makes for a real pain in the butt to clean out a whole bunch of wet super super hot yep <laughs> holy pops uh, but if, if you think about it this way uh, you're also maximizing contact meaning you're getting more of the beer infused because all of your beer has to run through your hot back yep so if you have a set amount of hops in your hot back or hop rocket for the smaller brewers that's a uh, blickman's hop hot bag then you're yeah you're maximizing that contact time and uh, uh you're getting all the oils for sure in your beer and not anywhere else not volatized not off in the environment not anything else hot back in out yeah something like that you can load up like a half pound of whole leaf hops in this little guy so try it let us know what you think try it. do other things it's spendy it's probably worth it I think it is. Yep. All right. Let's talk. Well, what, is there any other mechanisms you want to talk about with hopping? Oh, there's probably some I'm forgetting, but I think that covers our state of IPAs. All right. Yeah. Let um, us know if you got more specific questions on that because we will do a Q&A at the end of this. And so we'll try to hit, I'm sure there's, you know, in terms of like timing of hops and everything, there's probably a ton that we didn't go over, but. Yep. All right. So let's go on to our Q&A. Let's finish this guy well, up. So first one is hop creep. We got uh, that already noted. And so we'll go over hop creep. Um, Hop creep is really important, especially if you have any yeast that produces diacetyl. And what that basically means is that hops will have enzymes enzymes in them that will continue to break down sugars in your wort after it's packaged. And so if you have a, or after you dry hop, so if you have a dry hopped beer, then uh, you're getting more fermentable sugars and uh, your yeast will create more alcohol yeah. if it does that, or it'll create diacetyl. Yeah, I think the... Really, the only way to avoid this or the best way to avoid this is just to not crash out your beer too early um, or make sure that you're, you're off. Pull the hops off or get the beer off the hops. Um, and then, yeah, don't, don't cold dry hop. That's probably the best way, what I'm getting at right there. Yeah, well, um, if, you have a, if you have the right yeast, you can cold dry hop too. There's yeah. different flavors you get from cold dry hopping versus warm. I prefer, personally prefer to dry hop warm. But that's for flavor reasons. Yeah. And generally, you won't experience hop creep unless you are having a beer that's just really, really heavily hopped as well. Yeah. If you're using USO5, here's a great example. If you're using USO5 and you decide to dry hop a beer, make sure you give it like five days before you crash it. You can transfer before that five days, but don't dry it. Yeah. Don't, uh... yeah, which is actually something to note. So at home, when you're kegging up beer, uh, you don't have to because you're usually kegging it warm. Don't feel like you have to throw that keg in the fridge right away. Yeah. You can actually keg it up, let it sit at room temperature for another yeah three to five days, and then throw it in the fridge just to clean up any type of um, diacetyl precursors that might still be in the beer. Yeah, uh, or you can just find yeast that doesn't use diacetyl. I think a good example is uh, just good old SO4. SO4 is a very common yeast. Yep. Um, it's widely available. It's pretty cheap. and it, <laughs> I, In my experience, I have not gotten diacetyl from SO4 ever. Yeah. So another question that uh, somebody threw out there was uh, talking about the flavor profiles that you see on hot packaging, and usually they're kind of across the board, and uh, they're asking how you really nail in one of those flavor profiles over another. Um, and I'll, I'll get to that, but first let me just make the note that I have read so many of these descriptions on packages, and more often than not, I feel like they make these kind of up. Because these are the same no matter what lot number, and usually they're the same year after year, regardless of changes in the hops. Yeah, and and so it's all really going to depend on on you know using your own senses. Open up the bag, smell them, brew a test batch, and kind of see what flavor profile that puts out. But with that said, if you are trying to 
uh, get a, a very specific flavor profile out of a hop, a lot of times that can have to do with the temperature that you add them to your whirlpool, especially when it yep. comes to those aromatics. There are uh, definite differences with adding your hops into the, you know, as a flame out addition versus adding them at 180 to 190 versus adding them at 140 to 150. Uh, and so uh, I can't give you a full rundown on exactly what you'll get on this. My general is if you add them at the 140 to 150, it's supposed to be more citrusy. If you add them at the 180 to 190, it's supposed to be more tropical fruit. And if you add them at knockout, you're supposed to get a good balance of both, but it's more flavor and aroma and less overall aroma. Um, that said, you're going to have to try with whatever hops you're using at the time. You're going to have to try uh, with your system because your system's going to be a little bit different than mine in terms of how it infuses those flavors um, and just see what you like. So try try both. Do a uh, do an everything knockout. Do like a small bittering addition with your, uh, you know, you know, warrior or whatever high alpha hop you have and then do all your hops at like zero minute, and then at that 180 to 190 whirlpool, and then again at that 140 to 150 whirlpool. Actually, when we did the uh, the hazy IPA, that was that two summers ago now. Yeah, yeah we did I a video so. on that. That's what we yeah. did, and it was really good. Yeah, so that's honestly probably the better way to d determine the flavor profile of any new hop you're you're playing with is actually really load up on on the whirlpool, and then also hit it with a with a pretty decent dry hop, and do multiple dry hops too. Yeah, do the do the four day and the two day. So experiment. Unfortunately, we don't have a good answer for you because every system's different. Every hop's going to be a little different. Every crop year is going to be a little different. So yeah, and uh, yeah, also focus more on adding hops during the whirlpool than the dry hop because dry hop being an overly excessive amount can be a waste of money. You really only need to dry hop for a five gallon or nineteen liter batch. You really need to dry hop like two to three ounces. Some people are like, oh, I'm going to throw in, you know eight ounces or a pound of dry hops and you're wasting your money unless you have a really good mechanism to infuse those hops at that. You know, you'll read breweries that are doing that, but it's, it's basically a pissing contest. They're not getting all the flavor off those dry hops. So find a better way to infuse those hops before you try to add more hops. All right, let's see. Going on to some next questions. Somebody is asking how to prevent hop haze after a heavy dry hop. It's very difficult. You don't. <laughs> um, the one thing that I can say is if you uh, if you do a lot of clarification steps, you can or reduce hop haze. Um, I've had very, very clear beers that the only amount of haze is just the hop oils in suspension because it was mm -hmm. so heavily dry hopped. But uh, one thing you can do is if you're dry hopping, let's say, uh, well, first of all, brute IPAs will naturally help out a little bit because the enzyme helps break down protein-forming compounds. Um, but uh, if you also clarify at the same time, um, or if you you know use clarifiers going into packaging, then that can help reduce hop haze. But yeah, and most people I think mistake hop haze for protein haze. Honestly, in my yeah. opinion, uh, <clears throat> usually when you see a, a hazy beer that you're like, oh yeah, this is hop haze. Like I can't quite see through it. Um, more than likely that's actually a lot of proteins. Hop haze usually, um, shows itself as a very, very slight haze to where if you have say a standard pint glass, you can hold it up to a light and you can still see through it. It's just not going to be crystal clear like a lager would be. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can try doing finding agents. We use biofine, yeah. uh, uh, also or Kiesel saw, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and we do a two stage with biofine and Kytosan. So. Yeah. You can try clarifying if you really want to. We've done that with a beer that was, we called it Sorry Not Hazy. We brewed a hazy IPA, tons of oats, but we used a super moss in the boil. Uh, we still uh, biotransformation dry hop, so it should have a ton of that haze, but then we double uh, double um, 
find it with biofine and uh kytosan and it ended up being yep, pretty clear. clear so yeah all right um somebody's asking uh, talking about smash oops excuse me brewing um out of topic question brewing for a while now and i want to get into participating in homebrew competitions what advice would you give someone who has no knowledge about signing up for one uh i honestly don't do a lot of homebrew competitions yeah we uh it's it depends uh, what kind of competition. I would say my advice is brew a beer that has ridiculously strong flavors because if you want to win, yeah. the thing that I have found consistent. Is it gonna, yeah, is it going to be BJCP or is it going to be like people's choice? <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So that's another thing too. So BJCP stuff, if you actually have certified judges, they, yeah, I mean, brew it, brew it to the style guidelines, pull out all the stops, do whatever the traditional methodologies would be. But if it's a people's choice, if it's with the homebrew club, um, brew a beer that has ridiculously strong flavor profiles to it because it's going to wreck everyone's palates. And then every other beer they taste after that, they'll be like, ah, this beer just tastes bland now. You're forcing them into submission. <laughs> I've said, no, I've honestly, that's, that's I've, that wins. Yeah. I've seen that win time and time again. That's honestly probably another trend that we're going to see in the brewing world pretty soon too, is just like yeah. making really flavorful beers that have a lot of, I mean, not that we're all already doing that ourselves with our so. lemon bar milkshake IPAs and stuff, but it's definitely going to more future myth videos, please. Ah, we do need to make another myth video. I've got plenty in the back of my head that we need to do. Damn. All right. Somebody's saying uh, Whirlpool with Comet tastes bitter. Oh, without one, one more advice on the uh, homebrew competitions is if you have other homebrewers around you, start a little club and actually do competitions with them first. Um, I mean, you, you can go way into like specifics in terms of styles and stuff like that. Uh, when I was down in Pullman, we did, uh, we went through the BJCP style guidelines and we were like, all right, this month's competition is going to be on this style. This month's competition is going to be on this style. And I learned a lot. And then also we've got a lot of other people that are interested in doing, um, like one of the guys that was down in that club actually won, uh, the NHC gold, gold medal for a uh, Doppelbach that he did. Yeah. So. Play around with malts too. That's something that we've actually been playing around with. Uh, and if you can find a malt that's going to be, or at least like a base malt, for instance, that's going to be a little bit different than other people might be using, especially if it's local to your area, that could actually set your beer apart from from the rest just because it's going to have that little bit of difference to it. Yeah, well, that's just why I carry 25 different base malts. Yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. crazy or anything like that. I just like it. Uh, quike yeast and IPAs. Uh, quike yeast, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most of you do, is a Nordic-style yeast that you can pitch a very yeah. small amount of. And it tears through beers, especially if you ferment it hot, like in that 90 to 100 degree temperature range. Um, I like quite yeast and IPAs. Uh, we did it in our locale IPA, yeah. and it adds flavor. Yeah, I'm I'm a love hate relationship to it. Um, I feel like uh, why while well, what Peter mentioned, it does tear through beers. It's awesome for a quick turnover. I feel like for a lot of beers, for if you're not doing kind of a session more del or, or like kind of more toned down beer, which it can actually increase those hop flavor profiles with. If you are trying to already do a big hoppy beer, it can almost compete with them. Yeah. And uh, and honestly, it's not as easy to drink as something that's a little bit cleaner. Uh, one thing that's uh, uh, on top of that is that Quike will you'll, you're sacrificing hot flavor for yeast flavor because it's fermented so warm. Yeah. So you are getting some volatilization and you're losing some of that hop sharpness or brightness but you're getting a lot of middle flavor so if you're doing so on the commercial world the quike ipa is actually pretty ingenious because you can do use less materials and make a really good beer it's just not going to be the same as doing like that you know yeah. if we're using the independent strain for example and we got it fermented at 66 and we can load in a lot of hot flavors for both the whirlpool and the uh and the dry hop yeah so i mean ultimately i think like summertime especially if you don't have good temp control 
like that's where you know make some make some quake beers but uh yeah for me it's just something if especially if i'm gonna sit down and drink three pints i usually a quake fermented beer is not gonna be my go-to yeah also going back to the uh homebrew club judging competition kind of question uh if you are a judge in a homebrew competition and uh you end up finding yourself like, I don't know, sampling porters and trying to delineate which one tastes better. Tastes like porter is a great flavor description. So I would definitely go with that. Bam. Um, somebody's asking about hop combos, uh, which Lotus and Meridian I have not actually played with, but Citroen and Galaxy are hard to go wrong on. With that said, good so, luck yeah, finding if you're, Galaxy. If you're going for a combo, Citro, you already got a good combo. Galaxy, you already got a good combo. People call those the cheater hops, so... You you, you yeah. kind of can't go wrong after that. Citra and Mosaic are usually my like cheater. Like yeah. if, if you do a beer with Citra and Mosaic, um, again, kind of going back to they both have different oil profiles to them. You get that blend, and you can pretty much throw any hop schedule at it, and the beer is always going to turn out pretty damn good. So uh, what I would say with that particular hop combo though is that I would always underdo the Citra because it is that cheater hop, and it is so strong and so you so know, catty this year. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of those ones that you want to use it as a balancing hop, and you really want to show off the flavor of the Lotus and Meridian. So it sounds like you're kind of going for like some tropical fruit with a lot of like nice orange notes to it. Yeah, which I think kind of goes but, back to another question somebody was asking about Comet and really not getting a lot of characteristics. Um, from Comet, and that's because Comet is actually a fairly neutral hop, and that's why usually you add it as a supporting hop to something like Citra. You're going to tone down the cattiness of Citra. The Comet might up some of that, uh, some of like that orange character or something like that in there. So kind of using supporting hops with very strong hops, I think, is a great way to to blend different varieties together. Now, EKG and Comet. So yeah. uh, EKG is going to be like that subtle, grassy, like almost hay you know, classic old world style hop and Comet. I would, with that, I would, you'd have to go a lot of Comet to get a really good flavor and aroma off that Whirlpool. But a year ago, Comet was, you know, it was super cheap. Like fresh, fresh Comet was like $8 a pound. Um, so, but this year, for whatever reason, Comet, like I think people are starting to realize that Comet was, it, it was the galaxy of like 20 years ago. Yep. Um, and <laughs> so people are starting to pick it back up because it is so cheap. But yeah, I would not, I, I don't think Galaxy is worth it anymore. Um, yeah, Galaxy's super expensive right now. Um, but, uh, yep, I would definitely use something like Equinot, something like uh, even, what was it, some Idaho 7, actually, that we just got in. Idaho 7. That uh, really had a really similar, at least uh, aromatic quality to, to Galaxy. And so, yeah, something like Equinot, something <coughs> like Idaho 7 um, usually comes across drier, but even Eldorado. Um, I know we just got some in for a more reasonable price point, so... Uh, someone's asking, what do we think about Mount Hood hops? Is it really called Americans answer to German style hops? Well, yes, that's yes. actually why it was brewed. Yeah, uh, I love Mount what, Hood. Yeah, Mount Hood's really good. Um, I will actually, uh, on a lot of occasions, I'll use Mount Hood over a lot of German style hops. Uh, and it's not to say that it's necessarily better or worse, but it's just different. And in yeah. my opinion, it's got a lot of the flavors without a lot of the classic. Um, if you think about historical hops, a lot of them are naturally grassier. They're, they're naturally uh, more muddled flavors. Um, which goes with certain styles very, very well. Mm -hmm. And those hops are definitely should be used for those purposes. But Mount Hood is a cleaner answer to that. Yeah. And so I like it for, uh, I like it for, uh, he says for Weizen, oh, I just bumped the mic. He says for uh, Weizen beers, uh, if it's an American wheat beer, um, I definitely prefer Mount Hood over German style hops. Yeah. If it's a Bavarian style where you're getting a lot of that banana, I would go with the German style. Yeah, Mount Hood is probably going to be compared to like Hallertau, for instance. 
uh, is going to be just a little bit more pungent and a little bit more aggressive. Usually the alphas are slightly higher too. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, so kind of Mount Hood and Willamette are my go-to American, whatever you want to call them, um, hops. But uh, if I want something that's going to be a little bit brighter, a little bit, uh, a little bit cleaner, I'm probably going to go with Willamette. Whereas if I want something that's going to have a little bit more of those earthy characteristics, something that you're trying to emulate more of a um, noble European character, then, then Mount Hood is definitely my go-to. In fact, I would easily sub it any day for Hallertau. Uh, Mount Hood goes into, just for the record, Mount Hood goes into a lot of our sours. Um, just for, I mean, not obviously not very much, but just tends to be what we use. Have we used vegetables in beer before? We've uh, we've made a pizza beer, so I'll, I'll let you I'll let you guess if we've made a vegetable beer. And uh, we also made the master beta. We did make make the master beta. We, that was really good. Yeah, we sort of uh, yeah we, we, we beta is the genus for a beat by yeah, the way. We beat that beer into beta into, into some stuff. All right. <laughs> um, so yeah, the beats in the mash. Uh, you that was a very very earthy beer. But uh, if, if we did it again, I'd probably take out some of the beats. It's really really Pretty good, but it was. Um, not easy to drink a lot of. Great for color. Super great for color. We yeah. did beets and hibiscus, so it was a gorgeous red color. Uh, great for giving Logan a job for a couple days for filtering it out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we've also done a potato beer. That's actually in a video that we have. Oh, yeah. Like Talk our, about earthy. Yeah. Our old <laughs> old videos. That was, that was a tasty beer. I'd, I'd do it again. I'd actually <laughs> like to try you know another potato beer with all the, um, you know, the new equipment that we have because equipment yeah. can help you make some better beers. Bam. Can you introduce a yeast infection from flame out hops or early dry hopping? If not, why are hops naturally resistant to carry wild yeast? Yes, they are. Hops are naturally antimicrobial. Um, that's they, partly why we use them. That's a not necessarily. That doesn't necessarily mean that 100% of the bugs that that no bacteria can live on hops. But what it does mean is the bacteria that can live on hops don't like alcohol. So when you're using them as a dry hop, you don't have to worry because if the hops didn't kill it, the alcohol and the acidity of the beer probably will. Um, but yeah, hops are fantastically antimicrobial. They're also a natural muscle relaxant and a sedative. Um, they've got a lot of qualities that are medicinal and that's part of why they became really popular in beers. Um, the, the antimicrobial part meant your beers are less prone to getting um, infected. So, with that said, don't go scraping moldy hops off your floor and throwing them into your beer. Yeah, that's, could, uh, yeah. maybe not <laughs> the know, best idea. Still use cleanliness in your hopping schedules if that if that uh, helps answer those questions for you. Yeah, uh, uh, newer German hops like Mandarina Bavaria, Hallertau Blanc, and Hulmelin. Um, I, I like them, but they're very much, uh, they're, they're trying to be an American hop, at least as far as I understood when they first developed them. So I expected them to have that American aggression and they don't. And that's, uh, that threw me off a little bit because, you know, the first couple of beers we did with them, we, we hopped like an American hop, you know, expecting that same aggression. And they ended up being pretty, um, pretty dainty. Yeah, uh, no, they, uh, you're, you're spot on there. They don't have nearly that pungency that you would expect from, from an American hop, really any American hop. They still have that that German delicate characteristic to them, which is why when I use them, I put them in India Pale Lagers. So IPLs, yeah, they're great. Uh, low alcohol, light color beer that's going to have a delicate flavor profile to begin with. Um, they do work fantastic for that, though. You get those flavors coming through, but yeah, definitely don't blend them with with any kind of you know big American New World hop. It's just going to be for nothing. Uh, everything will be lost. Yeah. I love them for like dry hopping, lighter sour beers, like a, a nice kettle sour. Yep, Super good for dry hopping thing. those. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, overall, they, I don't find a ton of use for them because I, you know, I usually, when I'm going for a certain flavor, 
there's a lot of ways to get that flavor and a more yeah. expensive newer hop like those isn't necessarily the way that I want to get the flavor that I want off of my beers. And so I don't I, use them a ton, but I like them. I think Nelson Savon could fall into that uh, yeah, same, same category as well. So brew for 14 days rule as a part of two, two, two with temperature control. I feel like I get definitely get a crashed and kegged quicker brew for 14 days rule. I'm actually not familiar with the two, two, two. I do know like there's quick lagering <clears throat> methods out there, but uh, that one is not one I'm I'm super super familiar with. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's like a um, like a start at, start cold and then go two days at a cold temperature, two days at a hot temperature, and two days at a sort of crashed temperature. Oh, that could be. Yeah, we kind of, that's kind of what we do naturally. Uh, so if you're asking for what we do for a lot of beers, we'll start usually on the colder side, but with a ton of yeast, great oxidation and yeast nutrient. Um, what that means is our yeast is going to get a good start, but it's not necessarily going to create those fusily yeah, flavors from fermenting really warm. Uh, and then after a good chunk, probably about two thirds of the sugar is fermented in, uh, in our beers, we'll go ahead and rise that up to a VDK rest, um, which serves a double purpose because we also, uh, we uh, yeast rouse, we get the yeast back in suspension during that same time. Uh, that makes sure that the yeast can attack all the remaining sugars and really gets the beer finished out the way we want it to. Uh, and then we'll start to ramp it back down. Yeah. Um, that's you, our strategy for a lot of beers. You meant to say oxygenation too, not oxidization. Oxygenation. Yeah. Oxygenasium. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, so we wrap it up there. I think we got to start getting open now. Yeah. Um, so thank you everyone for tuning in this week. Hopefully we will see you again next week. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. I'll let us sit for five days and then cold crash. Is it correct? Um Oh, we got yeah, one I'm more. Just, I'm just trying to read. All right, one more, I, I guess. <laughs> I helped me with this, planning to dry hop end of fermentation for three days, then transfer to kegs, and then, like you said before, let it sit for five days and then cold crash it. That sounds about right to me. Yep. I don't know if that's that might be a response to Count Drunculas oh. on the 222, but, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, let us know. Uh, send us messages on Instagram uh, or uh, on, on the YouTube video if you have specific topics you want us to cover. Uh, we'd like to get some input from you guys. And, uh, yeah, at that, we'll go ahead and close this out, and we'll see you See you next week. Ka-chink. We just want to know what you guys want to see. I want to know what you want to see. Bye, guys.